standing on a sidewalk in the middle of nowhere on Quebec Route 389. There are trees all around, but hardly a hint that this used to be the main road in a town of 4,000 people. Under the sidewalk, there's a sewer. Everything else that used to be the municipality of Gagnon. Schools, churches, streetlights, mechanic shops, the airport, the houses. It was all bulldozed in 1985. After a vote by Quebec's National Assembly. Now it's one of the most desolate ghost towns I've ever seen. There's an airport runway out there somewhere still. Somewhere in the woods. Gagnon started as an iron mining town in 1957. And as suddenly as it appeared, it was gone. Taken down by a contraction in the iron market. At the time, it was run by Quebec's first black mayor. René Kwaku had left Papa Doc Duvalier's Haiti in 1957 and gone to Montreal. There he was hired by the mining company and brought to the town in the woods. In 1973, he decided to run for mayor. A friend of his told a Quebecois radio journalist, Gagnon did not suffer from racism. We only had one person of color and we elected him mayor of the city. That says it all. But then they bulldozed the city run by Quebec's first black mayor. So what does that say? Another friend told the journalist, He was a guy who got involved in everything. He was an Ida Columbus. He was in the Optimist Club. He was in the Mooses. He was in every organization. Rene, he's a guy who would have just as easily come down and have a beer with me, and in the evening, go to work at Town Hall. He was that kind of guy. Kwaku died this March, in Ottawa, far from this half-forgotten ruin. The closest living town is hundreds of miles away, and yet here's this haunted sidewalk. A car pulls over to the rotting infrastructure. It's driven by Denise Scott Brown, one of the most influential architects of the 20th century, and co-author with her husband Robert Venturi of Learning from Las Vegas. I.M. Pei may not have been happy on Route 66, but Denise Scott Brown sure was. The first experience I had was when we gave a hitchhiker a lift, and that was in South Africa, and it was 1945 or 46. There was a young guy hanging around a gas station, and he said he's going all the way back to Johannesburg, and he saw we had license plates for there. Could he hitchhike with us all the way? And he did. We had our whole family in the car. I think we had a dog as well, and then we fitted this extra one in. 
And he was a shy, a little bit sulky guy. I think he was studying math. But my dad drew him out. My dad was great interest in talking with people. He spots someone in a crowd. I remember once in Austria. He said, there's a soldier of the emperor, old, old man. He's a soldier of the emperor. Look how he stands. <laughs> Somehow he managed to establish connection with this guy. I saw them both smiling away. And so that's what my dad would do. We picked up another young Afrikaans hitchhiker who was from the Karoo area, and he told us about where he lived. So they were friendly things, and I didn't do it in South Africa because it's not as safe. But I got the feeling of it, and I liked it. And then when I got to England, I certainly intended to do more. And I never hitchhiked alone. My sister, who was 18, hitchhiked to Yugoslavia. More than that, she hitchhiked all over the place. She ended up in Norway. She started in Scotland, I think. She was in Turkey. And she hitchhiked alone, and she had amazing experiences. Was this your younger sister or older? Yes, yes. She was 18 at the time. I was 20. She was very brave. But she had strange experiences in a Serbian village. And there was an old lady there, quite a lot senile, who thought she was her returned daughter who had disappeared. And she followed him around all day. And then people just picked her up. When my parents heard she was going to hitchhike in Yugoslavia, they said, you must send us a postcard every day. She didn't. And then they started trying to trace her by her, I think it was American Express, traveler's checks. And over a period of about 15 days, she'd cashed one and that was all. And it was an English one for five pounds. So for 15 days, she'd spent no more than five pounds in money. She'd been fed by everyone who gave her rides and they took them to their village and they put her up and then she went on to the next village. And so it went. But when she went to Turkey, it wasn't as safe. She left Turkey quickly. And when she was on the boat, which was going from Turkey to wherever she was going next, I forget, they wouldn't let her be out on the deck steerage as a young girl. They said it was too dangerous. And they made her sleep in the second-class smoking lounge. They could at least have given her a non-smoker. It would have killed me. But anyway, so she did that. And then she had stories about finding nowhere at all to stay in a town in Germany. And they, they said, well, look, when you haven't got anywhere to stay, you go to the police station. And they don't put you up in a cell. They find you a place. And so someone got on the phone and she sort of heard this woman. She didn't speak German, but knowing some Afrikaans, that helps with German. So she saw the woman looking up, talking, saying something, and then she looked up again, and she said, about 12. So obviously they all thought this 18-year-old was 12 years old. <laughs> were the stories she was telling, were they an inspiration to you to also go hitchhiking, even if only in pairs? I was intending to anyway, but I certainly then decided to go to Yugoslavia. But before that, my first husband, Robert Scott Brown, and I... We did hitchhiking, and I went with friends hitchhiking to Wales, and we got truck drivers there. And I had my liberal education and truck drivers, which was a lovely story. 
first of all, how resourceful they are. And, you know, they'd often be a big truck and two of them there and accommodation for sleeping in the back, which they let us also use. And they told us stories of what had happened to them. And so I formed a strong opinion of the resources and intelligence of truck drivers, which I've never lost. And then when I got to America, we were having a class. I was studying architecture and urban planning, both. And there was a class in urban sociology run by an urban economist, Chester Rapkin, who later became my colleague there. He was talking about the IQ range of different professions. So lawyers are all up in the high IQ range, but truck drivers go from very low IQ to very high IQ. And the whole class said, no, there can't be any high IQ truck drivers except (laughs) two women, and we'd both hitchhiked. And I could remind them of that very beautiful film, Salaire de la Peur, which means The Wages of Fear. Oh, yeah. And it's an amazing movie. And of course, what you see there is their resourcefulness and their courage and all of that and their intelligence. So I could talk about that as well. Say, what do you mean truck drivers aren't up at the high range as well as down the lower range? So then I did lots of hitchhiking one way or another, like going there to Wales. Not very much in England, but I met Robert Scott Brown on his way to join me in England, I met in Israel, and I was staying with cousins there, and he was coming to meet me there, and I was on a bus, and I was going to visit another uncle in Gadera, in the the Negev. So I was on the bus, and the bus driver, I said where I was going, he said, you're going to have to change, and he looked around, and he found a young soldier who was also going to change. So he said to me, You go with that man. When the young soldier got off the bus, I got off the bus. And the young soldier hitched a a hike, so I got a hike. And then finally, they put me down at a certain place and they said, walk up that road and you'll find where you're going. And that was the kind of a thing that would happen is where one would look after you and another and someone would find someone who spoke English. Luckily, Robert could speak German and that helped with hitchhiking, having two languages. I could speak French, and he also learned to speak French. And then we were at another time hitchhiking in Denmark in truck, and there were truck convoys during the war going through to Germany, and we got a Danish truck driver who said he'd been driving along and he was heading to deliver milk products in Germany, And he looked up ahead of him in Hamburg, and he saw the whole sky in Hamburg blazing with red. They'd just been bombed to bits. He said, I didn't even try. I just turned around and went home. Was Europe still sort of recovering at that point? Were there a lot of cars on the road, or was it mostly shipping? In Yugoslavia, there were almost no cars, except members of the party. And then they'd always sweep up dust and cover you in dust. (laughs) But like in Belgium, people were just plain snobby. They wouldn't do it. And then we found one person who gave us a ride. And his story was that he had to be in a correctional institution for having been a Nazi. So we got the story of the Nazis re-entry into society as he talked. And sometimes you'd find, like in Denmark, the nice old couple, and they just wanted to be nice. And it was Robert and I then. 
And I don't drive. I was learning to drive then, but things happened that made me not drive. But Robert would offer to, if it was a long trip, they'd offer to drive for them. And that was a good thing you could do for a person who gave you a ride. Another good thing was talk to them so they didn't fall asleep. So you had duties when you did it. And it was a nice time of being in Europe. People were not cynical and they wanted to help. And even when I went by train, lovely things happened to me. There's one family, we were all overnight and we all got off and they gave me breakfast. No reason except we'd been talking. But I was just part of the family for that while. And then they put me on the train to Aarhus. I was a young girl and people were just very nice. Then there were some who were just dreadful and they said, why are you going to stay in the youth hostel? You'd come stay with me for nothing. <laughs> Putting up with things like that was really very loathsome. But I had many interesting experiences, like I took up with some ex-Nazis and just mainly we talked about how could they have changed and how could I be friends with them in any way as a Jew and what happened to them and Looking at America now, I see the same things they told me about Germany. And looking again at how they relearned and what they learned was very touching. One was a student of religion, and the other was going to be a lawyer. And my friends in Spain, then he was hitching all over Spain. He had finished at Colombia, and he was going to be a photographer. And he was traveling as an American on a grand tour, and he began looking at how other people were traveling, and he realized that if he hitchhiked, and he could make an Indian fire like no one I've ever seen, <laughs> Jewish from Brooklyn, and we had to sleep out in front of the Escorial in the forest in the rain, he made a little fire there, and he kept it going, and he had his hoodie over his head. It was really funny. But anyway, so we would be talking away and he would never even admit to being Jewish, which he obviously was, but he would be out photographing and we'd be arguing, say, look, this is what we were fighting for. Don't you realize that's the same thing we were fighting for? And then we'd look up and there was Len, his head, he's taller than all the Spaniards there, bobbing over the head. He's going in and out of markets. We see him far away and his clothes falling to pieces because he'd been there so long. <laughs> and then he'd come back and rejoin us and we'd have supper together and then at night it was so funny because they would all come to us and shake hands and bow the two germans yes that's just what you do in germany when you go to bed at night and len would shake hands bow and without their noticing it click his heels <laughs> which is a spoof on them but anyway, Len turned out to be a famous photographer called Leonard Fried. He lived in New York. He was one of the ones who formed that West Beath community. Anyway, so one way or another, we got around. But again, like in Israel, I once got a, a ride on a boat. I think I only ever had one ride on a boat, hitched a lift on a boat. How did you do that? Were you walking around the marina? No, it was on the Sea of Galilee. And I, I think it was fishermen, and we were trying to go somewhere. They said, well, we're going there. You can come on our boat. <laughs> and quite often on horse carts, the one in Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia was the most complex, I think. One, they were terribly nice to us, and they had this cart, and they were all on it. And then they got up to a mound of stuff, 
and the horse had to drive over the mound and the horse didn't want to. One horse, about five people and something on the cart as well. So they got the other people off, but we were the honored guests. So we had to sit there and watch while they hit that horse over the head with a pole until it took them over. And I wanted to kill them. But, you know, I didn't dare say a thing. Yeah, out of politeness. Not, not only politeness. If we'd said something, they might have killed us. <laughs> Become the horse of Turin, almost. Mm. But that didn't happen very much. And then another very, probably the most dangerous thing that ever happened in my life. Robert and I were heading down to Ockridge. There's a big sea there. And it also had beautiful architecture. You see, we were looking at architecture and taking photographs. We were very near the Albanian border. And we heard a whole lot of shooting coming from the Albanian border. People turned to us and said, those are very wild people in Albania. But we were heading down a high road and we knew that Tito was in the area. And there was much cynicism being expressed about all people in the area shall voluntarily come to chair the great leader. So we knew about that chairing and what it meant. And then as we were walking, waiting, looking for a ride, by the way, the nicest thing in the world is to get out of a car into a very beautiful landscape and know you will sit there just looking at things for the next 30 minutes. Yeah. One time I overturned an old Jewish graveyard lost in the grasses at the side of the road. Strange things like that. But in this case, we were walking along and there was a funny little snick, snick like that. And I thought nothing of it. And then there was a voice and we looked up and it was a sort of a hill, a mound of some sort. And there were two young soldiers on that mound. Both of them had guns. That's the snick, snick, breech bolt or whatever it is. You take off the safety catch. So there we were being held up by soldiers. They were young and they were very pleasant, but they didn't speak any English. Luckily, Robert spoke German. And so where are you going? We're going to Ochrid. Why are you going to Ochrid? Because there's a beautiful lake there. We want to have a swim. Well, don't you know that Tito is in this area and there's no foreigners allowed to be here at all? And now you must go right off. <laughs> It's probably the nearest thing we were ever being shot. So just then, a very large truck came by, and it was full of people standing in the back of it, construction workers. And Robert and I nestled into these construction <laughs> workers, and we thought we'd be hidden there. But we weren't in the least hidden. We got to the next town. The police found us there and took us out. As soon as we landed anywhere, the police were the ones who could see our passports. So everyone looked for the police. And they brought the police. And as the police watched our passports, you saw people coming. I saw literally one man, he had a stick over his shoulder, knotted with a, one of those carry bags knotted around it. You make it out of a scarf. He looked like Dick Whittington going to London, if you know the stories. Well, he put that thing down and he walked right around us with his mouth open. And then they'd usually find an old lady who spoke German from the Ancien Regime. And she'd ask us questions and tell everyone. And that's how it worked. Either the police did or they did. Then the police would not let us camp out, as we did mostly. We'd find a willing farmer or something and stay there. So what we had to do was go that night to a hotel. 
And they took our passports away and they came and gave us our passports the next day and actually put us on the bus and made sure we left. But all of it done with lots of humor. Did they ever tell you why they weren't allowing people to camp? Because I know now in the Balkans, a lot of places have anti-camping ordinances because of mining from the 90s. No, it wasn't that we were camping. It wasn't at all that we were camping. It was that we were foreigners. You see, we never went to camping places. Well, we did. We went to a camping place because we were with two groups of French people, and they were students. The French have these wonderful schools for training people to go to work in government agencies. And they were all very bright, and they were in these agencies. Their knowledge of English was theoretical, to say the least. <laughs> but luckily, we could speak French, and I could. And Robert was learning quickly. Robert... Robert had learned Zulu as his first language, and he could go into a store in Yugoslavia and say, matches, please. Shibitsa Molim, I remember that. And they would think he was Serbian because <laughs> he could make pure A sounds. And so what happened was that we met up with these people. We weren't finding lifts very well. And here were these people in little Renaults. They were driving all the way where we were going, which was like two or three days. And so we just joined forces with them. And it was very funny because Robert had been painfully carrying a watermelon, lovely watermelons you got in Yugoslavia. They didn't have anything for breakfast. So they're all thinking, what are we going to do? How are we going to find a place? And they're not finding a place. And we said, look, this watermelon is big enough for all of us to share. The French have coffee and rolls for breakfast, you know. And failing that, they just go hungry while we have the watermelon. Did you meet anyone who was also interested in architecture while hitchhiking or any older architects? No, but you see, we were on our way to summer school in Venice, a Siam summer school. And so there were all the young architects from all over the world there. We didn't hitchhike there. By that time, we had acquired a car. It was a Morgan three-wheeler. Have you ever seen one of those? Uh, I have, yeah. Ours was not the most ancient ones that looked like a dragonfly in the back. <laughs> it was one with a wheel at the back, which looked like a bumblebee. People would challenge us to a race. Well, we wouldn't, but we'd just give them a show of how much faster we could go if we wanted to. <laughs> I suppose on a Morgan, there wasn't much room to pick up hitchhikers. There was room in the back. But the door used to fly open, so it wasn't very safe. So sometimes we would give a ride to an old lady, but that was when we were in, in London or something. And then I would sit at the back and hold the door unobtrusively so she wouldn't know that it was likely to blow open. But we didn't do it much. One thing I was thinking about was a lot of your work in the 70s was about looking at ordinary and ugly buildings. Did Hitchhiking force you to start looking at that sort of thing, or were you interested in it before that? No, I was interested from... You see, my mother had studied architecture. She couldn't finish, but this was in the 20s, and her friends in school in South Africa were introducing the modern movement, and they were disciples of Le Corbusier. They were in touch with Le Corbusier. So I was a very ardent, and still am a very ardent modernist. And of course... Part of the theme of modernism was studying ordinary architecture. 
And then in South Africa, we did a lot of studying of African housing and then of African public housing. But when we were traveling, we were traveling in, in Europe while we thought we still could because the probability was that South African government was going to remove passports, particularly of people who were against the government. So young architects were told, you better get out and take a look at a lot of buildings. You might not see them again and be sure to record them. So our photography was to do recording in case we ended up six to 10,000 miles from the roots of our cultures and unable to travel. But as we were in Venice, something happened. Venice was wonderful. The architects there, they were so touched that we were fiery modernists like that because for them during the war, modernism had been a beacon for freedom. And many of those famous architects who were there spent time telling us about that. And also someone like Albini, he could be in the Mark Square and kneel down suddenly and pick up a pigeon and launch it. It's a real <laughs> art doing that. So we were in school there and doing a design and talking with all these people and having dinners afterwards, and it was lovely. But we were also photographing. And then when it all ended, we stayed behind. Suddenly, an envelope arrived, and the school gave it to me. It was from someone I'd never heard of. And in it was a check for a 100 pounds. And that was my dad's working. He knew this guy in Venice. Turns out this family were the, they were some of the ones that went to Kenya after the war because they had been Nazis. Well, they'd been fascists, Italian fascists. And his father had been the mayor of Venice. And they lived in a palazzo on the Grand Canal. Well, anyway, so that's where the check came from. And we had a month on a hundred pounds. We could live a month and even say to some friends, let me pay for dinner. Wow. So just to clarify, the, the former fascist befriended your Jewish father? It's more than that. It's more than that. The people who went to Africa were trying to hide from having been Nazis. And the thing to do was to pal up with Jews. Oh. Now, we didn't know that, but that's what it was. And yet we had some who were really close friends. Our last friend who was really a close friend and he really loved us when it came to his daughter marrying a jew which she did he was very anti-jewish and she was horrified she says you are a jew hater and your best friends are jews what are you going to say he must have come with the permission of the nationalists to south africa as soon as the nationalists left he went back to yugoslavia it's complex stories about being nazi one thing I was interested in while you were hitchhiking around were the sort of buildings you were photographing, like what you would find in a textbook, like old cathedrals, or were you more interested in more contemporary things? We were there to get heroes of architecture, the famous buildings, and take them back to learn from them. But as we'd be doing it, we'd suddenly find our eyes drawn. and We knew Le Corbusier did a building here, and we were going to take that. Well, on the way there, we'd find click, click, click. That's interesting. Go off the road a little, click, click. And suddenly you've got a whole peregrination around that building of other things you found interesting. Then photographing well-known famous buildings became a little less interesting. And we photographed things that related to them, 
the interesting things in their neighborhood. And that seemed more interesting to us. And that's how I got into photographing things like Las Vegas. But also when we went home, we were doing a whole lot of African housing that's, you know, mud housing that's painted by the macaque. We did a whole series of things on those even before we left. Was leaving Europe sort of your goodbye to hitchhiking as well? Or did you end up doing it at all in the U.S.? I'm trying to think if I ever hitchhiked in the U.S. I don't think so. Was it just you felt you'd gotten too old for it? or Have you ever tried to t- study urban planning in an American university? You don't have time for anything, <laughs> anything at all. I couldn't see Philadelphia for the first six months. Oh, wow. So when I began doing my teaching there, the first thing I did was give my students a project in Philadelphia. So at least they get out and see the city they're about to spend two years in. (laughs) We spent all our lives reading in the library. It was absolutely fascinating. And then we asked one of the older students, and he was in the same graduate program, but he'd been working. We said to him, well, how do you do all the reading? He said, I just don't do it. (laughs) Well, we got A's and he got a B. But I got a lesson of my life, and I had a good friendship, and I argued with those people. And boy, had I learned to argue by living in South Africa. (laughs) In America, we once picked up a hitchhiker somewhere. We did that a few times, but you know, it's not as safe here. Do you think so, as compared to Europe or South Africa? South Africa is not safe. Europe straight after the war was very safe. Now, I had one awful time when I was, I, I discovered, and this is not exactly nice to say, but if you were in parts of American-occupied Germany and you found someone who spoke English, they were up to no good. They'd learned how to rip off the soldiers, I think. And who knows, it might have been that that part of Germany was more Nazi than other parts. I'm not sure what the reason was. But I got to Hamburg, and the whole place was just wrecked, wrecked, wrecked. You saw st- steeples, and I used to climb up church steeples and look out and photograph from there. You couldn't get in. The whole church was wrecked and cracked open, and the steeple was locked with big cracks in it. You didn't even want to go near it. And then what there was was bright neon because it had become some kind of a, a red light district. The building's in ruins, and in that was growing a new red light district, and that was quite distressing. Sounds almost like a neorealist film. Yes, but you know, it was part of my introduction to neon and to wanting to photograph neon. Hmm. Do you think there were any fundamental ways your hitchhiking experiences influenced what followed in your life? Learning to see how working-class people lived was very nice in South Africa. Of course, the working class people were all black and apartheid was the law. It wasn't altogether like that because we had African servants living in our houses with us. But you couldn't have equal to equal relationships. We learned to do that by the traveling. And so it's a combined story. The hitchhiking goes with all of that. That last ride took me clear of Quebec, onto the last road of the trip. I'm in the middle of nowhere in Newfoundland and Labrador, between Labrador City and Churchill Falls, on the Trans-Labrador Highway. There's so much water here, 
I'm on a little island where the only things standing are the transmission towers, trees, and me. It's so quiet. 